The podcast that you're about to enjoy is part of the Low Tree Studios podcast network. To enjoy more great podcasts like this one, visit LowTreeStudios.com. Everybody and welcome to episode 81 of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast. Hi everybody, trying to think of a clever little joke for the 81, but I got nothing. No, no. In 1981, there was what? I learned today that in 1982, the Commodore 64 computer came out. Did you have that in America? Yeah, but that doesn't help us here. No, but it was a pretty iconic thing. Do you know, it broke the Guinness World Record, that computer, for the most sales. I know what happened in 1981. What? I had my 11th birthday. Yes. Anyone good at maths will know that a little while ago, well, actually not, you won't necessarily know a little while ago, but last week, Bella turned, and I work it out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm 50. And proud. Yeah, I'm proud. A lot older than me. I'm hearty. (laughs) Vintage. Right, before we go any further, I have something here for you. Let me just get it. Okay. This. What is it? Well, this was sent to us by John. This is the cartoon pages. I know. (laughs) John and Melinda Barnes sent this to us. Now, I'm, I, I was actually going to say something, but I'm not. I'm just going to let you open this. Go ahead. You got, we don't have this kind of cartoon pages here, so where did it come from? Came from the States. John and Melinda Barnes are from the States. Let me just move the mic away a minute because you're creating havoc with the sound, woman. Well, I don't know how to open a present quiet. No, 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 no. There better be something good in here. They did. <laughs> they did a good job of wrapping it. <laughs> there we go. That's some good wrapping, that is. I can't get it open. Gosh, she's the worst person on her birthday. Well, it was addressed to the podcast. Actually, it was addressed to me on the podcast. So, it's mine. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, so why? Well, then maybe this is I, yours. I, I, no, no, no. I know it's I know it's for you. 
<laughs> Lots of Cheez-Its. Pepper Jack Cheez-Its. Those are mine right there. <laughs> yeah, look, there's a card here. Let, uh, open the card. <laughs> You've got to read it because people can't okay, see it. Okay, I will, I will. A warm hello from all of us. Bella, Shelley, and Bryce. Bryce's still sleeping. You're on our minds and in our hearts. You're in our wishes, too. We wish you peaceful, gentle hours each time we think of you. And because you mean so much to us, we're hoping that you know we're sending our encouragement within this warm hello. So it says, from your friends from across the big pond, may you enjoy some goodies from the Golden State. Love, Melinda and John Barnes. Barnes. Mm. Two packages of each of your favorites. You may keep them yourself or share them. Your choice. Ah, uh, how cool is that? This is so awesome. Uh, can I have these for breakfast? Well, you need to go and wash your hands first because we've just had opened up outside packages. Ah, uh, well. <laughs> we can't. We can't get these. We can't get them. <laughs> you cannot get these cheeses. Anywhere in the UK, these are the best snack ever. <laughs> and, you know, and, and every time she eats them, she says, "There's a there's a certain way you gotta eat these." <laughs> every single time she ever has them, there's well, a certain way you gotta eat these. Ready? Watch this. And I know how you eat them. You turn the salty side down. Salty side down mm -hmm. on your tongue. It just, it tastes different if you do it the other way, and that's been proven. Even you admit it. So what have you got to say to John and, and Melinda? Thank you so much. Uh, I can't believe it. This is your fault because you, you put out a request. Do you remember loads of shows ago? Uh, okay, listen, y'all. I would really, really love one million pounds. <laughs> yeah, I think that's going to no. work. But I tell you what, John and Melinda. Oh, that's so cool. Thanks, you guys. guys. Uh, do you know what they've been through to try and get this package to us? No. They, they sent the package back at the start of May and... May. Um, May. Now, bearing in mind, when they were getting these Cheez-Its, they were on lockdown. I mean, you know, Aww, it was difficult geez. to get the stuff. And they managed to get the stuff. And then they sent it and it got returned to them. It actually, it, it, it took like three or four, well, three weeks or so. And they were tracking it, tracking it, tracking it. And it returned back to them for some reason. Didn't even get into this country. So they went and sent it again, and this time, obviously, it's got here, but I've been in contact with the two of them, and we've been tracking it all the way, and yes, it's got here, so... The, this must have cost you, you guys a fortune to send. That's really amazing. Thank you so much. They, they're really decent people. They're really <laughs> nice, and they're always contributing on, on the show. They're always, you know, getting in touch on Instagram and everything else, and... and yeah, really decent people. Thank you. So, mine, mine, because uh, I'll be generous and give them to you. And then these are for Bryce. No, no, no. no those are yours because they're yours. They're those mine. are Bryce's because they're Bryce's, and those are mine <laughs> because they're mine. 
So, all just right, so you on, know, um, um, Bella's got the Pepper Jack Cheez-Its, <laughs> Bryce has got the original Cheez-Its, and I've got the pretzel M&M's. But you love me so much, you'll share some of those pretzel m ms I think we'll all probably share them with you each other. You can't get pretzel M&M's here either, no, guys. you can't. Honestly, this, this place is, <laughs> is... I don't know why they keep all the good stuff out. No, me neither. But seriously, thank you so much. This is so awesome. This made my day. Almost for my birthday. Almost for Almost. your birthday, yeah. <laughs> so, you've got to promise me something. I promise I'll eat every single one. You've got to promise me something now, though. And I won't share any with the dog. You've got to promise me something now, though. What? You don't eat those during the rest of the show, because <laughs> listeners are not going to be happy hearing... <laughs> okay. Well, they might be. No, we'll we'll take a pause now so that you can have some, and then we'll come back in in a couple of seconds, and then seconds. Well, it'll be seconds for the listener, <laughs> but we'll come back after you've made yourself sick on cheese. It's awesome. <laughs> and by the way, we're also setting up a video chat with John and Melinda as well, so that you can say thank you in person. That's awesome. When's that supposed to happen? Uh, after I eat my cheese. It's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> possibly Sunday. Cool. I don't think we have any plans. No, no, I think we're pretty safe on, <laughs> on, on our diary at the moment. Oh, this is so cool, you guys. Okay, we'll be back after Bella gets some Cheez-Its in her belly. Okay, so let's get on with the show now, shall we? You put those Cheez-Its down. All right, okay, I'll put them down. Thank you. Right, okay, we're going to move on with the show. Now, can those... I have one of your M&Ms? <sighs> Keep your hands off my... <laughs> They're not peanut M&M's, don't worry. (laughs) You guys probably know that a little while ago, we did a charity event called Livestream for the Cure. And we had loads of listeners, but believe it or not, the listeners that we had were mostly people who were not regular listeners to the show. And I know I got a lot of messages from listeners saying that they're really sorry that they couldn't turn up because of the time it was, etc., etc. So we're going to play that for you now. It's a little bit of a cop out because we've been busy and I've gone back to work. But we're going to. Pl- you. I know. <laughs> we're going to play this for you now. So, this is our show that we did for the live stream for the Cure event. In case you didn't join us, have a listen to this. Really, really cool. You're going to enjoy it. And it's really a flashback to some of our favorite episodes. Oh, and I should say before we get started as well, thank you to all of our listeners who did tune in and who did donate because we absolutely smashed our target and the Epic Film guys who organised the event smashed their target too. So we did absolutely amazing. Thank you to everyone. And here it is. Hey everybody and welcome to a special edition of the Weird, Wacky, Wonderful Stories podcast. Hi everybody. So you've got us for the next 50 minutes. Yeah, and i got to put up with you for the whole rest of my life. Oh, that's charming, that is. Yeah, well, at least they only got to do 50 minutes. Well, I know. Tell me about it. Well, we've got to try and get on their right side because we're going to be asking them for money during this show. That sounds wrong. Yeah, okay. Well, not us asking them for money <laughs> because we're here today and really honoured and proud to be able to be part of this this special event, live stream for The Cure. We know that the Epic Film guys have been working really hard to get this organised, so we want to make sure we do them justice. And also we want to make sure that we can tempt you guys into parting with some of your hard-earned money to benefit what is an amazing cause. So what do we usually do? We usually regale stories of the weird, wacky and wonderful. We interview 
people. They can be authors. They can be scientists. Who else have we had on? We've had authors, scientists. We've had teachers. We've had experiencers. Two stupid people. Always that's available. That's mm-hmm. us. Yeah, mm-hmm. we we normally back it up with a little bit of stupid. Yeah, you gotta you gotta make it equal. If you got someone really intelligent on there, like a professor, telling us about something, and we got to bring it back down because otherwise people are just going to switch off. Is that what you think? Well, that's what I'm telling myself. Right. Okay. Because <laughs> I was thinking you were going to say something flattering, like I was smart and you weren't, so that we'd balance each other out. But no, you didn't go there. Damn. I can mm. cut that out if you want. <laughs> no, no, I gotta leave it in. See, so everybody knows where I am on the totem pole. Oh, no. <laughs> Oops. Okay, I might have some explaining to do later on off air. Yeah. But we are here, hopefully, to entertain you for the next 50 minutes or so, and we decided to share with you some of our favourite interviews throughout the three years we've been running the Weird, Wacky, Wonderful Stories podcast. It's funny because sometimes it seems like, wow, it's been three years, and other times like, oh my God, it's been three years. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely a labour of love. Yeah, labour. Do you know, I've never worked for three years straight without earning a penny. Well. That's some dedication to the job, that is. Yeah, I'm glad that you recognise that I'm, you know, willing to work for free. Well, I was thinking I work a lot harder on you for nothing. But uh, no, no, for nothing financially. Oh, geez. (laughs) Let's get on with the clip. (laughs) Yeah, you ain't going to (laughs) be. I think you better play that clip unless you want to be in the doghouse. No, I think I will. I think I will. Okay, we'll start with a clip from a really funny show. Our guest was Mark Rees, who is an author and journalist from my country of Wales in the UK. Your country, huh? What are you, the king? Okay, okay. The country I live in. Mark is telling us about ghostly encounter from his book, Ghosts of Wales, Accounts from the Victorian Archives. The back of your book, it says on there that there's 50 hair-raising and sometimes comical real-life accounts. Can you share a comical one with us? <laughs> I'm glad you asked that because my favourite story in the entire book is a comical one. And, and the reason I love this story so much is that when I first pitched the idea of this book to my publisher, my exact words to them were that some of the stories that I've found in the archives sound like the plot from an episode of a Scooby-Doo cartoon. And <laughs> what, I, what, what I meant by that is that there were criminals and there were, there were kids and there were people at the time messing around pretending to be ghosts. And I didn't literally mean there was a gang of pesky kids in a, you know, in a 60s, 60s camper van. <laughs> driving around with a dog, pulling masks off people. But what, what I meant was is that some of the criminals or some of the, you know, just kids messing around were often caught out in quite comical ways when they were pretending to be ghosts. And I found this story which takes place in a, a little village called Rosset, which is up in North Wales, part of part of Wrexham County Borough Council now, right on the border with England. And Rosset was being terrorized by a ghost. But the problem they had in Rosset was that there was no outdoor lighting at the time, you know, back in the 19th century, which meant this ghost could pop up, scare people, and just disappear into the darkness before they had any chance of doing anything about it. But the locals were getting wise to this. And at night, when they were out and about in the dark, they were keeping their wits about them in case this ghost popped up again. One night, the ghost decides to scare a man who's cycling home on his bike. And the ghost pops up and goes, boo. Well, I don't know if it says boo, but it pops up. Absolutely boo. <laughs> it's, it's, with, with a podcast, you need something to illustrate the ghost with something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so the ghost says boo. <laughs> and, and the man falls off his bike. 
the man pulls out a gun and shoots a bullet at the ghost, which sounds quite remarkable nowadays, but there are cases from this period where people really did shoot ghosts with guns. Luckily in Wales, they didn't end tragically. There are cases in England and, and elsewhere where, whether it's mistaken identity or whatever reason, but ghosts really did get hit by bullets. And if they you know, if they weren't dead beforehand, they certainly were afterwards. <laughs> but in, in this case, the bullet did miss the ghost. And the ghost did its usual trick of running off into the darkness. But there was another man also keeping his wits about him, looking out for this ghost. And he had a dog with him. And when the dog heard all this kerfuffling and shooting and people falling off bikes, the dog chased off into the darkness after this ghost. And the first inclination the people of Rosset had that this ghost wasn't really a ghost is when the dog bit the ghost's leg and the ghost went ow and <laughs> fell to the ground, which meant that the dog could rip the white sheet off the ghost uh, and unveil in the villain underneath, who was then apprehended by the police or the authorities. And, and the reason I love that so much, you know, I punched the air when I found that story, it is because after telling my publisher they did sound like the plot from a Scooby-Doo cartoon, I did actually find my very own real-life Scooby-Doo dog who was <laughs> alive and well in Wales, had the ghosts in the 19th century. Well, I don't know about you, but that was one of my favorite <laughs> interviews that we did because I wasn't really expecting to ever say Scooby-Doo exactly. on a podcast, exactly. but there you go. Not, not a serious one. No. <laughs> it's funny how they reported and handled ghosts in the Victorian era. See, if you went out with guns ablazing now and shot a ghost, the ghost would be laughing at you while the police carted you off to jail. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, they dealt with it a whole different way back then. We're going to switch gear now and let you hear a clip from a show we did with Marie D. Jones. Now, she's an ex-UFO investigator with MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. She's an author and has been on many shows like Ancient Aliens, etc. Her story took an unexpected turn when we asked her this question. But before we play this, please be aware that it may not be suitable for the younger audience. So have you ever investigated a UFO landing which had hard evidence then, going back to your time within MUFON? No, unfortunately. So I was in MUFON for 15 years in first in Los Angeles. And then when I moved back to San Diego, I, I started my own MUFON group with another gal. We investigated dozens of cases, mainly eyewitness reports. And I'm not saying that those are not considered good evidence, especially when you have a group of people that don't know each other and they're all saying the same thing. Well, it's good enough for a court of law, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But the thing is, there were some cases where there would be things like little indentations in the ground. But those are, you know, they're not necessarily proof that something happened. This was before the cell phone era. So very, very rarely were we able to get a case where somebody was able to take a picture or a video because you literally had to go grab a camera. And if you were lucky enough to have a video camera, but the most compelling cases were when the abduction phenomenon began and they started to trickle in. And the gal that I ran the group with, her name was Lori. We didn't have any understanding of what the heck was going on. And this was before the use of hypnosis came into vogue. So we didn't know what to do with these people that were suddenly coming to us and telling us these horrendous stories. And over time, a few people stepped forward that were being trained in hypnotic regression. And I know Bud Hopkins and John Mack and a lot of the mm. big names in the UFO world were 
training people and word was starting to get around in the UFO community. Here's what you do. Here's what you need to do. But that was the most terrifying thing. So the gal that I started the group with, and I won't say her last name out of privacy, she was experiencing repeated visitations. She lived in this big house at the top of a hill uh, and her children were being abducted. And she didn't reveal that to me until much later. And it got to the point where she would call me in a panic and say there were people on our property. My husband went out. They had a lot of guns. And, you know, I didn't understand why when I first met. I thought, oh, there must be hunters. But no, literally there were things on their property trying to break into that just to sort of scare them, peeping through their windows. And it got to the point where we talked and, and we said we were disbanding this group. She and her family up and left and moved somewhere. She said, I'm not telling you where I'm going because I don't want you to get involved if, if something bad is going on here. Around that same time, I was getting some really interesting phone calls by someone who had a voice changer on the phone and who knew all kinds of things about me that were not public and was literally telling me in the apartment that I lived in what room I was in, what I was wearing what magazine was laying on the bed or the night table. I knew that I was being watched. I didn't know by who. And I later told that story to Nick Redfern, who is, I'm sure you guys know the name, huge in the field. And he said, Marie, that sounds like a man in black situation. And I said, you know, Nick, I, it could have been because I do not scare easily at all. I'm a New York Italian. We don't scare, (laughs) but that, scared me so badly that I quit MUFON, never went back to the UFO research field until years later when I started to write about it in books and uh, I just walked away and moved. We, we ended up moving to another condo. So, yeah. <laughs> so remember, the weird thing about this was when we were trying to record it, it kept breaking up every time she would start to talk about it. We ended up having to stop and start and stop That's and right. start. And even on this recording that everybody has just listened to again, you could hear that it was still breaking up. But yeah, that's pretty creepy. I wouldn't want people telling me what kind of stuff I'm wearing in my house. And yeah, you know, uh, yeah, that's creepy. Have they been in your house? Is there some kind of camera in your house? Is there some kind of bugging equipment? Or are they looking from outside? You, know, you, mm. you don't know at that stage where they were getting that information yeah. from, do you? So, yeah, a really, really frightening situation. We can definitely see why Marie decided to quit MUFON at that stage. Yeah. If anybody's listening, we, you don't need to watch us. We, uh, we're, no, no, we're, we're pretty bog-standard, boring. Yeah, you certainly don't want to look at the magazines Bella's got next to her side of the bed. Lovely. Anyway, one of our first interviews that we ever did was with an idol of mine. As a youngster, I used to watch this man's paranormal TV programs. It was a real treat for me to get to speak to this author, broadcaster, researcher, and reverend, Lionel Fanthorpe. In this clip, he tells us about a time slip incident that happened here in the UK. Okay, I'm going to move you from one tomb to a story about a time slip incident at Tomb Lands. Is that right, in Norwich? Yes, in Norwich, yes. Oh, that was an amazing thing, and it's so local, because... Patricia and I are both Norfolk kids, and Norwich was our capital city of Norfolk, and Mm -hmm. that was where we always used to go for our shopping or the theatre or if there was a good film on. And one of the the, the very strange things, if you go down to Norwich Cathedral, 
in what is called Tombland, there's a, an old-fashioned Victorian gentleman's toilet. And you had to go down this big flight of steps. The toilets must have been, I think, probably 20 feet below surface level, or at least 15. And it was one that uh, I had on occasion used when you've been shopping. You think, well, I'll just pop down there. It is a convenient convenience. And the very strange mystery was there was a small car parking space. You could put perhaps four or five cars around this toilet. They were marked off as parking spaces. Mm -hmm. And a retired couple, gentleman and his wife, had been shopping. And uh, she said she was fine until she got home. But he said, well, I'm going to have to just pop down into the uh, Tombland toilet. So he parks the car within sight of the top of the steps, which you use to descend. And five minutes pass, 10 minutes, 15, and he hasn't returned. Now, she is getting very anxious in case he's either fallen on the steps, had a heart attack, had a stroke. Is he lying there unconscious on the floor of the loo? And a well-meaning and kind-hearted traffic warden was going past, just checking. You don't find many of those, do you? Well, I've I've heard that they're rare. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, anyway, this guy was very friendly and helpful, and he could see the lady was anxious, and she said, could you please help me go down the the toilet and see whether my husband has been taken ill? He's been down there an awful long time. So traffic one says, of course I will, madam. And down he goes. He came back no more than three minutes later and said, there is no one in the toilets, madam. I have opened all the individual, there were three or four individual toilets, and then there was the urinal on the wall, up against the wall. And he said, I've opened each of the cubicles. There is no one in there. And she said, well, I can't understand it. She said, I've been sitting here in the car right by the top of the steps, waiting for him to come back. Anyway, the traffic warden went on his way to do his other duties, and another five minutes passed, and the husband reappears, looking very distressed and worried. He opens the door, sits down beside her, and says, I've just got to get my mind together, and I'll tell you in a minute. He says, I'm all right, don't worry, love, don't worry. And when he's recovered after a few minutes, she said, please, what happened? And he said, I don't know. I went down, I used the toilet, I washed my hands, I came back up the steps. The car was not here. You were not here. On the next road that intersects with Tombland, there were cars going almost in total silence, and they were of a design I have never seen. And he said, I remembered reading in science fiction stories like H.G. Wells that If, unbelievable as it seems, a time slip happens, go back to the place where you were when it happened. And he said, and I went back down into the toilet. And he said, and I pulled the seat cover down and sat down, trying to get myself back under control. He said, I was in a state of shock. And then he said, when I'd recovered, I came up the steps, everything was normal. You were here, the car was here, and there was no sight nor sound of the strange vehicles that I saw when I came up first time. And they drove home and lived happily ever after. There was no long-term ill effect. Now, on this whole question of time slips, I think that even the most 
advanced of our physicists really know what time is, but we are only just beginning. We're on the fringe of understanding what time really is. Well, Lionel wasn't the only one that spoke to us about time slips, was he? Do you remember the chat that we had with Dr. Michael P. Masters? Yeah, he has to be the most intelligent man I think I've ever spoken to. I felt so thick talking to him. Because you are. Thank you very much. He's actually received a BA in anthropology and French. He also has a PhD and teaches biological anthropology, cultural anthropology, archaeology, economical anthropology and globalization, sociology, and cultural diversity. So basically, if you need to know it, just ask him. Exactly. He has really, really interesting theory about aliens and their origin. Take a listen to this. I refer to them as extratempestrials, the, the Latin root for time replacing terror, meaning outside of Earth, so outside of time. But simply, the book looks at long-term evolutionary changes in the hominin lineage, mostly focusing on biological changes. Many of the factors that have led to these changes, especially in recent human history, after domestication, agriculture, a number of things associated with our craniofacial anatomy, specifically that's primarily what my dissertation research was on and my biomedical research today using MRIs and other clinical data. If we look at these long-term evolutionary changes in the context of what we look like now, and if we project those forward without making any assumptions or without speculating about what might happen to us in the future to cause them, we don't really even need to, to speculate about what these forces may be because Regardless of what environment we were in or what our social organization or political organization was like, the, the ecology, the, the environment that we were in, these same dominant craniofacial trends of primarily increased neurocranial size and neurocranial globularity or a more balloon-headed characteristic, a reduced face, smaller teeth, smaller face, those main traits that define our lineage beyond upright walking, if continued into the future, would seem to to match what's so commonly described in, in extratempestrial reports and, and reports of close encounters. So the model just it looks at it in the context of long-term changes projected forward and, and kind of ties in these alien creatures as being a future form of ourselves coming back through time to study us in their own hominin evolutionary past. Why would they do that? Honestly, if I had that technology, if I had a time machine, that's exactly what I would be doing too. As, as a paleoanthropologist, as a biological anthropologist, we study what little skeletal material we can find from very old hominins, uh, mostly their preserved teeth, their preserved skeletal material, their fossilized skeletal material. But if we could actually go back in time and, and pick them up, do, do a medical examination in, in the same way that's so commonly described in these abduction reports, taking skin samples, hair samples, fecal samples, uh, sperm and egg uh, in order to study genetics and, and evolutionary processes. We would have a wealth of information far beyond that which could ever be gleaned simply from doing archaeological excavations and paleoanthropological excavations. So I, I think the purpose primarily, or at least what we see in abduction accounts, is most likely that they're anthropologists, linguists, cultural anthropologists, possibly medical doctors, geneticists from the future doing research into their own past. But with that said, it is possible too that some of these encounters, especially ones where it's just sightings of a metallic disc in the sky, there could be some aspect of tourism to that as well. It could be where we develop the ability to 
travel backward in time and, and simply observe past ways of life. How much do you think that our behavior will affect our makeup, our, our physical makeup in the future? Because the reason why I ask this is actually quite topical because I've been working away this week and I've come home and Bella led me into the living room and said, watch this. And then she proceeded to say, <laughs> hey, and then a certain other word, which I'm not going to say now because goodness knows how many devices in our, in our house <laughs> will go off. And then she said, lights on, and our lights suddenly turned on. And then she right. said, light one off, light two, 50%, etc., etc." And she wow. has, in the week that I've been away, totally augmented our home. So, <laughs> That's great. Well, yes, you say. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Until they revolt and take over exactly. your household and hold Ex- you hostage. Exactly, yeah. So we are suddenly becoming less active. You know, we're expecting more automation in our lives now. And surely that's going to have an effect generations down the line on our physical makeup as more of a support to your theory that we will end up these spindly, slim, very little muscle tone figures because of our wives. Well, well, (laughs) (laughs) But see, they're not going to, you know, they are future us's. They don't need to be badass looking now because they just probably have these lasers and be like, I don't like you. Poof, you're gone. You you know, so so they can be little stick things. They just need a big head so that their big old brain can think of all of these things to create so that. Well, that's why I'm asking the PhD and not you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and that's been the that's been the going trend ever really since three point three million years ago when we first started making stone tools. And when it, when I teach about these things in anthropology classes, I bring out these early stone tools. They're known as Oldovan tools. Uh, simple, unifacially flaked, little nasty pieces of rock that they knocked a, a one side off of and, and made a tool with. But but the computers we have today are cell phones, wrenches, forks. Anything you can think of, any tool that we use today is the direct descendant of those early stone tools three million years ago. And and there's big leaps forward. There's different periods where we developed something that had an effect on our society. It had an effect on our language, on our morphology. Fire is probably one of the best examples. About 1.8 million years ago, we started to harness the power of fire and, and used it ever since. And it allowed our faces to shrink down and get out of the way of the expanding mm. brain. Because we could cook our food first, we could start that digestion process. It allowed our guts to shrink down even farther. With a reduced gut, it allowed for more energy to go to the brain. It's what's known as the expensive tissue hypothesis. But that change was another cultural change. I mentioned agriculture a couple of times because it's vastly important to this conversation. And that's really when we started to kind of differentiate into these different roles, these occupational specializations. There were people that were out working in the fields. They were toiling very hard. To, to produce food, but they were able to produce enough of a surplus that other individuals didn't have to do that anymore. And now roughly less than 1%, at least of the American population, is involved in agriculture because we, we've intensified it to the extent that we're able to live off of the surplus of what that 1% produces. And that separation of the people and the energy necessary to get the food themselves, outsourcing that to someone else means that we can kind of become more lazy or less fit and and have automation. We can have machines do things for us, turn on our lights for us or drive us to a specific location without having to walk or saddle up a horse. So it's, it's been a continuing process. And I, I honestly can't predict what's what it's going to be like in the future. Obviously, you'd think we would have 
more automation and more robotics, uh, having robots do more things for us in the same way that it has been over the last 20 years. So eventually you'll probably be able to just take a pill. You won't even have to cook anymore. You just take the pill and quite possibly. Yeah. You you see that in a lot of science fiction films where it's just, they get all of their nourishment from a, a little energy packed pill. So yeah, I mean, and a lot of a lot of these abduction reports, they are described as being tall, spindly, almost like insects. And other ones, and, and those individuals may be from a, a much more distant point in our future as well, where they've had longer to go through a number of these continued evolutionary changes. Others are others still are described as having hair, blue eyes, looking somewhat Norwegian Nordic, or yeah. Swedish. Yeah, and so they're probably a more proximate point in time relative to our current position in time. And and they still have many of the same traits that we have, just slightly larger, tend to be blue eyes for some reason, uh, blonde hair, and they don't really look that different. But yeah, as you go further into the future, that may help explain some of these these skinny, spindly insect or almost reptile-like characteristics. You mentioned earlier that there were some individuals and cases in the book that really sort of spoke to you. Can you leave us with maybe a little teaser of one of those? Yeah, one of my favorite ones uh, also was in Australia. I believe her name was Amy Rylance, K-Australia, I believe. But it was witnessed by two other individuals, her being pulled out of her bed and through this window. And she was found, I think it was like 800 kilometers away from where she was taken, but only an hour and a half after she was taken. So there's so no way she could have... That distance, to travel that distance would take almost 10 hours by car. Mm. She was found 90 minutes later, 800 kilometers away, but she claims she was abducted for several days. And when they took her to the hospital and did an examination, they found that she hadn't eaten for, for multiple days and that her body hair had grown out. And it was clear that she had been gone for much longer than 90 minutes. And and honestly, that that scenario is best explained in the context of time travel. I don't know how else it it could be, honestly, uh, other than she was taken, she was brought back farther from where she was, but also brought back at a time that was closer to when she was taken than what she had actually experienced in, in her biological and cognitive passage of time. So that's, that, that to me is one of my favorite cases because it really does point to the, the intertemporal aspect of this phenomenon. Well, I've never heard that before, that aliens are actually us coming from the future to study us in the past. No, and the fact that he calls them extra tempestrials instead of extraterrestrials, I think, was quite interesting as well. It makes sense if you think about it, really, because it does answer a lot of questions, doesn't it? Although I don't know if I'd like that. The little aliens come home from school and go, Mom, Dad, will you sign my permission slip for me? Where are you going? <laughs> oh, a couple hundred years in the past. Is that okay? How much is it? Oh, a million, whatever their money is. No, you can stay home. We can all look forward to that, apparently, according to Dr. Michael B. Masters. He's a lot smarter than we are. Although I'd be really mad if I get on the tour and and they show me a woman and then they just dump her off the side of the road. That's pretty rude, don't you think? They could have at least dropped her back to her own house, even if they didn't put her back in her bed. You know what I mean? They could have just put her 
Yeah, she's like, she's like, where did you come from? Earth. Yeah, we'll just put her back on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> the hell's that? <laughs> yeah. Well, she wasn't the one paying for the tour. That's the thing, see. If she'd have been paying for the tour, they probably just treated her like someone hitchhiking or something. Yeah, maybe, but Some, still. Someone who's just stowed away on their spacecraft. She wasn't a good representation of the past. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't like your body here as much, so yeah, we're, we're going to go put you back. Another one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, if you're interested in that subject, you should definitely give that episode a listen. We have another great clip here from an interview now with a guest who's been on the show a few times and in fact now has a regular monthly slot on our show where she gives a report on the paranormal. Here is author and investigator Ruth Roper-Wild. We mentioned in the bio that you come from an investigation background, so you're naturally sceptical, I would assume. Naturally, and, and I will always think to look for okay, so what's another explanation for what's happening here? You know, is this a trick of the light? Is this something else? Can I poke or prod whatever it is that's bothering me to see what happens? So I naturally tend to go into investigative mode when anything happens. I think that partly comes from my mum as well as my background of, you know, my actual career. When I was very much younger, we lived in a house that had a lot of poltergeist activity in it. And I remember one particular evening being stood in the kitchen with my mum and we were clearing up the tea time dishes. It was broad daylight still. Um, the radio was playing very ordinary domestic scene when one of the used butter knives that was laying on the kitchen worktop started slowly spinning in a circle. <laughs> so we both stopped what we were doing and sort of looked at it in astonishment. And as we watched, it, it's still spinning. It moved to the edge of the worktop and flew across the kitchen, still spinning, and eventually fell and hit the floor. Wow. And my mum, being the completely prophetic woman she was, calmly reached into the kitchen drawer, got out a tape measure, and measured the edge of the kitchen work surface to where the knife had landed and remarked, hmm, eight and a half feet. Well, that wasn't gravity then, was it? <laughs> wow. So, so she, she wasn't phased or shocked by it at all then? No, she would never be, you know, frightened or sort of spooked out by. She just accepted that there are things in this world that we can't yet explain. Did she have things happen to her maybe in her childhood that would account for that kind of behaviour or attitude? Definitely. She came from a very poor farming background. Her father was a farm labourer. So they lived in a tithe cottage, you know, tithe to the farm. Mm. And the cottage itself was extremely old. It's long since been demolished. So we, I've never seen it. It was long before my lifetime that it was demolished. And almost every evening, they would have the latch on the, the cottage door would jiggle itself and open. Somebody coming home then. <laughs> Somebody's coming home, yeah. yeah. Footsteps would cross the flagstone floor and one of the chairs would creak and rock back as if somebody had sat down. And then a moment later, the footsteps would go back across the flagstone store, back out through the door. Wow. And she, was, she said it was so normal that it, it sort of happened so frequently. They'd unconsciously stand out of the way of the door because they knew it was going to open in a minute <laughs> um, at a certain time. So I think, you know, she just learned to, to sort of take it with a complete pinch of salt that these things, these things are there. They're not going to bother you. Was that house that she was living in then that you're talking about the same as the butter knife incident? No, not even in the same counties. Wow. So did she bring something with her maybe to... 
I don't hoosh. think so. I genuinely don't think so. I think different places just have their own <laughs> phenomena that happen. And whether, you know, whatever your personal belief system happens to be, whether you believe that's a spirit attached to the house or an elemental attached to the house, or whether you believe it's the individuals that are living in the house have their own energy they're giving off or whether you believe in the stone tape theory there is phenomena happening almost everywhere almost all the time and some people notice it more often than others because one of the things I've really really noticed with this lifelong fascination with ghosts and particularly since I've started writing the books is one of the first questions people almost always ask me is so do you believe in ghosts then and my answer is always well for me it's not a matter of belief or not belief I know that phenomena is happening because I've seen it. What I don't know is what the explanation for that is. And I still to this day remain completely open minded. And because of my own investigative background and knowing that, you know, different witnesses will see the same thing, but experience it in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. When you add into that the element of, well, actually, they're, they're experiencing something supernatural insofar as it's not part of your normal daily run of experiences. I think that adds an extra element of they're going to experience an even more unusual way to each other because they haven't got anything to explain it. They're going to subconsciously supply their own belief system to it. Yeah. So I always think, you know, if you put two people next to each other and something happens in front of them, one might think it's the spirit of a deceased person, you know, and it's a ghost. The other might think they're seeing an angel or a demon because they've got a different belief system. Yeah. But nevertheless, both of them saw something. Listening to that clip just reminds me of how pleased I am, and I'm sure you are, that Ruth is now part of our team. She definitely adds a element of sanity. Is that what you want to call it? <laughs> yeah, we'll go with that. Well, we planned on speaking to David Bedrick who's a speaker, teacher, attorney and author of the acclaimed book Talking Back to Dr. Phil about dreams and their interpretation. But to say that the topic went a little off-piste is an understatement because we ended up talking through a number of issues you have relating to dreams. Yeah, I didn't think I was going to get so personal. I have to say that David was keen that Bella be totally fine with the release of this episode. We're not going to share it all here, but here is a short clip to give you an idea of where we went with it. Again, not therapy for us, but I do have to mention this because I've been trying to get Bella to change some of her habits. And maybe you might tell me you that... You can't change me. Uh, maybe you're <laughs> going to tell me that I'm doing totally the wrong thing. I don't know. Bella, you're doing totally the wrong thing. Okay. okay. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> That's easy for me to say. Yeah, cheers. Anyway, it's lovely speaking to you. Bye. No, um, <laughs> Bella loves watching these true crime things on TV. And she watches well, the... Hang on a minute. Let me finish, right? <laughs> And she don't don't let him finish, Bella. Don't <laughs> him finish. <laughs> she she watches no because she knows what's coming. She watches everything to do with these murder shows and these serial killer shows and everything. And not that I think that she's psychotic in any way at all. And that's that's not the thing. She what she finds interesting is how these people are caught and how they almost always trip themselves up. What does happen, and we're getting to the serious side of this now, is that Bella has, I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, Bella, but I would say probably 80% of her nights sleeping are with nightmares. But they go in cycles. I mean, I can go for months and be fine, and then all of a sudden I'll have loads of them. 
you know, loads of nightmares. But she doesn't, she doesn't even tend to remember them. But I think, and I might be totally wrong, I think a lot of it is because she is pouring these serial killer things that are re-dramatized on the screen. She's watching them constantly, and, and I worry that she's actually... I don't, think, I don't think that's the reason. Okay. Sorry, I don't mean, I don't mean to be more... No, no, that's more, good, more no. <laughs> I don't think that's the reason. I think the re... Now, Bella, I'm talking about you without knowing you, right? Yeah. But it, so, so you have to then take everything with, you know, that proper grain of salt, meaning it resonates with me, it doesn't resonate, because if I actually spend time with you, even if it was 20, 30 minutes talking with you, or 15 minutes about this, I would know something that I don't now know. It's yeah. very important to me ethically because too many people advise people based on very simple things without really even spending a preliminary amount of time. So I have to, I want to say that ethically, if there's an audience, quick, quick answers sometimes can be right on, but they should, but ethically one should take time before one deals with a serious issue. And really, you know, just like if I came to you for the medical thing and and then you say, Oh yeah, I've seen that cough before. It probably means this. you probably would want to say, but let's check it out a little bit longer. Right. So I I just want to say that, but now I can tell you things I know about patterns that I've seen in other people that might apply. So that's what I can do with that story. And, and the patterns that I, that a pattern that I've seen that connects to what you're saying is the same thing that compels a person to have a habit or watch a TV kind of a show or eat a certain kind of food. The certain, the same thing that compels the habit is in the dream. It's not the, the habit is not causing the thing. The TV is not causing the thing. The, The interest in the TV show is the same thing that's compelling the dream. They're both, being generated out of the same concern, psychology, thought. Does that make sense so far? Sort of. So, so what you're saying, David, that the interest, the reason why she watches the shows, i.e. the how they got caught, that sort of stuff, is is the same thing that is driving the dream. So it's, again, that interest in being caught, etc. Yes, that's right. Let's, let's imagine, now, Bella, this is, this is, this if this has anything to do with you, it's only by accident. I'm not trying to be accurate yeah, yeah. about that. So I've just, now I'm just thinking about clients that I've worked with and things like. I'm so seriously. I'm not trying to be clever with you. But yeah. let's say a person had had a certain kind of violent history. Let's say in childhood. Mm-hmm. Okay, and let's say that that let's say that history was denied or dismissed. That didn't really happen. That's no big deal. You're making stuff up. Which that's that's pretty common, actually. Yeah, yeah. Right, that somebody tries to change the person's mind. You're making things. What's happening to you? You're some kind of weird. You got some kind of psychological problem. You're all paranoid. So now I drum into that child by with powerful forces. That could be parental forces that can do that, right? And now the child doesn't know, doesn't believe themselves. But the psyche, the dreaming mind, the unconscious mind is still looking. Something happened. What the heck yeah. was that? Now that mind will generate all kinds of things, habits, nighttime dreams, and all that kind of stuff. And one possibility for that kind of dream, now I'll be specific for you, Bella, one kind of possibility is that there's a crime that you really should find out what it is. Now, now I'm not suggesting that's a violent childhood crime. A crime could be that you lost a part of yourself. When, when I was, I'm 63, when my first, my first marriage, I, I no longer married to that person. My first marriage, I, we, I was a writer and a poet. 
but I wanted to be a good husband and an income earner. And I put away all my writing for years in the psyche. That's a crime. Can you follow? What yeah, happened? Yeah, because what, what happened to that writer? It, how come it took him till 50 to go back and start writing again? That's a kind of a, that's a crime. Like I lost a part of myself. I didn't know that, but my psyche might be dreaming of somebody who stole that. They yeah. stole something. Moving. So it could be a literal thing or it could be a psychological thing. But if we explored more, I would say we have to now be dreamy. What's the crime? If there was a crime that happened in your life, what would it be? And you have to be imaginal now. So it's not only literal. You might know literal things might come up to you right away. Yeah. That's great. I always thought this, but people told me this wasn't true. Or I had a gift and I'm not using it. Or I have a secret love with something that I don't really share with people or something like that. There's a crime. And then there's a question. Should that crime be caught? Aha, I know what's happening now. I should go back to my writing. I shouldn't give that up in my next relationship. Should I catch the crime? Yeah, I get or, it. Yeah. Or do I need to get away? Oh, you got something already. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, good. You can say it or not. <laughs> oh, no, just 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 past stuff. Yeah, I get it. It makes a lot of sense, really, thinking yes. about it now. So that sounded like we got into some really heavy stuff. We did get into some heavy stuff. But it was still fun. I, I enjoyed sort of seeing his process and how he thinks. Mm. and get, So, yeah. You got a free session. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think I need more free sessions. How's that? <laughs> yeah. So, really, we've only been able to give you some little snippets of our three years. But we do really hope that you've enjoyed it. And we really hope that you go back and you listen to some of the other podcasts that we've done. Yeah. And we've also do other types of show as well, which we didn't really want to include today because between you and I, sometimes they can get a little bit naughty. A little bit. So <laughs> as well okay. as doing as well as doing the interviews, we do a totally different show. It's marketed as the same. It's still called the Weird Waggy Wonderful Stories podcast. But we do some episodes where we have an interview where we're serious and we try to put a professional outlook on it, if we can, as professional as we can get. And other episodes, it's just us. We're discussing things that may be weird news or that may be wacky stuff that's happening in the world or it may even be a wonderful story about someone who's overcome some kind of trial or tribulation. Sometimes we can get as I said, quite rude. So we do carry an explicit tag on our normal podcast. So if you do see the explicit tag on the individual episodes, be sure not to listen to those around children. You can find us on all of your favourite podcast apps and via our website. Our website is www.weirdwackywonderful.co.uk and you can contact us via email. Our email address is mail at weirdwackywonderful.co.uk We've also got a Facebook page and a presence on Twitter and Instagram, so you've no excuse if you want to get in touch. If you have any stories that you'd like to submit to us, or indeed if you'd like to come onto the show and tell us about an experience that you've had, or maybe a book that you're writing, or maybe if you've got a guest suggestion for us. We're now going to leave you with the ending of the episode that you just heard a part of, actually, with David Bedrick. And i got to say, it's probably one of my favourite closes to an interview. What, what about you, Bella? Yes, definitely. It was really cool. So we'll leave you with that. But thanks once again for spending time with us. My name's Shelley. And obviously next to me is my beautiful wife, Bella. Our podcast is the Weird Wacky Wonderful Stories podcast. And we would love to have you along for the ride. Take care. Thanks again and stay safe. And stay weird, weird, wacky wacky and and wonderful. wonderful. 
Awesome. Really fun talking to the two of you. Thanks for being yeah, open and vulnerable been... and sharing your own dreams and, and thinking about dreams together. It's a, it's a really fine thing. I no problem. Well, we really enjoyed having you on. And it's, this is a little bit out of our norm, but I think it was a, definitely a refreshing change. Wasn't yeah, it? I think it's awesome. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. <laughs> oh great. I want it to be I want it to be your very favorite or I'm not hanging up. <laughs> David, that's th- the te- that's that's the child in me. No, yeah. I have to be the very favorite. Number one. Not like period. <laughs> okay. Let's explore that, David. <laughs> no, I, I think I need to later. 